Hi, this is Theral Timpson. I'd like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter at www.fivewiththeral.com to be notified of each new 5 o'clock podcast, as well as new articles coming out each week. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's show. Yeah, happy happy summertime. Um, Nathan Pearson is joining us. It's really good to hear you again. Hey, it's, it's been way too long. Yeah, it's it's nice to hear you. Nathan and I used to do a regular show talking about genomics and the crazy places it was going. Um, so it's great to have you on and have you on my new podcast. Thanks for coming. Yeah, and it's nice to hear it, I, to see the kind of eclectic variety of topics you're doing. And I, I loved, I please add my shout out to Sean Sherman um, for one of your recent episodes on his, his new efforts in Minneapolis. He was really welcoming to me as a as a foodie scientist coming to town there. And I just, I loved hearing that you talked with him. Oh, very nice. Cool. Yeah, that was so much fun. And I love his vision. So have you been to the restaurant? I haven't. Uh, it, it, it was still a gleam in his eye when I was there. So he was, he was planning everything. And it was just really exciting to, to hear about those plans. Okay, that's right. You used to live over there. And are you still in Boston now? Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we're talking DNA today. Um, and, you know, I just thought, let's have a conversation. Uh, we did a lot of formal <laughs> interviews. I've interviewed you in, in, you know, when you've been working for companies and we had our monthly show, um, which we, we would get kind of uh, casual and colorful there. We tried. <laughs> So the first time I remember seeing you, you were on some public stage with Ozzy, uh, Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne, and uh-huh, you had sequenced uh-huh. their genomes and were telling them about it. Uh, what was that, like 2012? That was uh, 2010 of all years, yeah. 2010, okay, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Baker's dozen years ago already. Wow. And uh, and my how things have not changed, and in some ways have changed, but, but uh, in terms of personal genomics, uh, it's, it's remarkable how... Uh, how that talk, I think, still stands for what we can infer for a typical healthy adult's genome today. So, Oh, interesting. For better or worse. Yeah. And um, I can't remember. Did you find anything significant in their genomes? Uh, significant in uh, – I would say no in terms of statistically significant, no. Personally significant, not particularly. I think uh, what that talk – and it's a fun talk, and it was a really fun thing to do in, in retrospect – um, what it, I think, helps level set is what people's expectations might be about about their genome going in, about how much we have to learn scientifically before we can really start to make predictive insights or, or therapeutic insights or anything like that. Um, there's some fun stuff in Ozzy's genome that would, you know, as in anyone's genome, there were surprises um, for ancestry that are, are kind of fun to think about and connect one to one's uh, to, to the human past broadly in kind of personal ways. Those I think are the most, sorry, uh, those are the most personally meaningful kinds of insights one can often reliably expect to get. And then if one is lucky, one might get an insight that is uh, deeper than that and more meaningful in some, uh, in some physiological way. But we didn't in that case find anything like that. Yeah. So you talk about these two directions in um in some of your you've given ted talks which are really awesome but basically the two directions of health and history right and the the whole ancestry thing and history that did take off after 2010 
Yeah, I, and I, I think that um, that's been it's been nice to see. There, uh, I think you know maybe later in the conversation we'll get to some of the ways in which there's there are some um, storm clouds on the horizon about that that we need to think about and be ready for. But um, connecting us to the human past has been one of the really great um, kind of. Uh, it's one of the great directions in which genomics has shined light in the past 10 years, and not just personally, but in, in understanding human past more broadly, um, some of the ancient hominins who figure among our ancestors and or, or the, the neighbors of our ancestors as well, uh, we started to learn a lot more about them in part through DNA and in part through further archaeology and things like that. I was reading up on you. You actually... Um you are actually traveling out there with National Geographic and Spencer Wells um, with some of those early trips. Is that right? Yeah. So t- that was already 25 years ago. Um, so oh, Spencer, wow. yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, but that, that was a really singular kind of experience to have as a young scientist to get to go out into the world uh, and, and think about how what one does in the lab connects with the lives of real people in, in, in the moment. Um, and also the, their, the, the past that, that both you as a scientist and they as people are interested in. Um, and it really stretched, uh, it stretched this kid's mind that long ago um, and helped, I think, it helped me um, better understand and keep track of what we learn about human diversity going forward from that. So that was a great, a really great trip uh, that long ago. Yeah, I remember uh, when that came out, National Geographic published that, and that that was like the first time that we had such an accurate picture of migration patterns. I don't know planet. about the first time. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it it we it's always been regionally biased. Okay, that was one of the, that was one of the first. Um, so Spencer's work, I think, early on was one of the first kind of synthesizings of what we knew about human migration from um, from DNA and, and ancillary data. Uh, so I'll grant it that, but I think that, that, you know, there was a lot of work that went into it even before then as there well. Was, okay, there was a lot on my grade. Yeah, no, I'm saying it was the first time I realized, <laughs> okay, you know, good. and saw this. Um, and, you know, I was I was working in DNA, DNA synthesis, so, you know, I was super fascinated about DNA. Um, but then to see this history come out, and so so history's been a, a big part of, of what um, DNA has told us. Um, you know, um, there are many times we were talking on the program and I, I thought, you know, DNA is truth in a big way, right? It doesn't lie. I mean, for instance, it's used now for solving crimes. Um, it's been used, it's been used there for a long time, but you know, we see that happening now more that there's more testing available and, um, uh, and then we had this boom in DTC testing where people could find their ancestry. What 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 are your thoughts on that overall? That whole um, ancestry testing boom. I, I think it's great. I think it's become in some in many ways it's become a, a bit more normalized, and that makes it in some sense uh, over time more mundane. But I think there are people for who it, it is really important. Uh, we, I think we've talked about this before, Daryl. That. Um, think about the the American populace and and what people know about their families. How long ago their family ancestors were here? Be they you know were they among the first peoples in, in on the continent uh, millennia ago, or did they come more recently through Euro colonialism and through enslavement and things like that? Um, and I think for different facets of the American public, um, those insights have been in some cases really important. So for Black Americans. 
for whom the paper trail ends, you know, at 1870 or later for many lines in their families, understanding their DNA has been a way to reach further back into time along ancestral lines that were sidelined by history um, and to learn more personally. And, and, you know, you saw glimpses of that before the DNA era in Alex Haley's work and roots in the 70s. But I think that DNA has really helped that for many families in the country. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, you know, there's no denying it, right? right. I mean, the test could be 99.95% accurate. Well, whatever, yeah. But okay. But there, there we get into some of the cans of worms because um, while the DNA itself is what it is, and to your point, you know, it's, it's factual, it's true. Uh, they're, they're just molecules. Um, the interpretation is often subject, like everything else. In I, I think, in the past few years, I've started to, to think more about everything in science is subject to political uh, interpretation and, and twisting, and and also kind of not just political, but kind of like personal wishful interpretation, squinting. Mm. And so we we need to be you know careful about interpretation of um, of DNA data personally in lots of contexts. And it's funny now that you mention this, we haven't caught up in a while, but. In the past few years, for me, the notion of truth and the facets of it that we can access in part from DNA has become more and more important. Um, and so one of the recent TED Talks I gave was to try to understand what DNA can tell us about the history of, of Palestinians and other people in Palestine, for example. And this is coming at that question from the perspective of somebody who grew up as an American Jew. Um, and for whom, you know, uh, in a fairly liberal environment, but but all the same, uh, with, you know, the dogma that I learned was that Palestine had been effectively an empty place, uh, uh, so-called land without a people for a people without a land, meaning us, uh, to whom we, you know, to which we would return, and uh, and basically that anybody else there was a, you know, any was an interloper, if anything, and the DNA data is very different. Um, it tells us that the uh, that people have been there the whole time and that the, the people who live there today and identify as Palestinians are, are the descendants of many more ancestors from that region than our own ancestors there. Um, and, and in any case, so truth has been really important in, you know, in science generally, but I think in, in how DNA can be used to understand history, it's really, really crucial for, for problems that extend beyond just... Uh, wonky science problems. There's political implications. Yes. And I did watch that TED talk you gave. Um, first of all, you started with this awesome, beautiful slide, which was like a work of art, um, because you had basically put, you'd put different populations, genomes up there, and then you had colored them in different color for, um, for different, uh, what would you call it, ancestry, history, and it was a yeah. real mosaic, but you could see that um, the people of Palestine, the Arabs of Palestine, um, were very similar to other people in the region. Yeah, so I'm glad, I'm glad that you saw the talk, and that art that you saw, that, that tapestry, is just, that's humanity. Um, it's a visual representation of it from taking P DNA from a lot of people and asking a, a computer to kind of refract it into its guesses as to how much each person today gets their ancestry from some of several pools of ancestors in the, in the past. So basically you tell the computer, uh, if there were 10 pools of ancestors in the ancient past, um, divvy up everyone's genome today into some mix of those 10 pools by the, the best you can, by the numbers, by the way the, the data work. 
And it's it's actually, you know, it's a very beautiful result, and it shows you both the structure, but also the mixing, the inevitable mixing in everyone's ancestry. And I think there are important points there and subtleties that you could gaze at for days. Um, and and so I encourage people to to delve into that literature to learn more about how our, our ancestry does tell us about um, about the human past, but it, the the important lessons are that we're, everybody's a mix and that we're all we're, we're all cousins. Yeah, yeah. This this is kind of a big um, big story for you. Um, you like to talk about our relatedness <laughs> and show how we're much more related. <laughs> I I think it's important. I think that um, you know again these are trying times for and they have been in the past few years and they were before. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the key truths that DNA has revealed is that, that, uh, just inevitable kinship of everybody. There are some really amazing, uh, amazing things that our, our field of population genetics can, um, can help people understand about, about populations generally, be they viruses or people. Um, and that's one of them, you know, is that, uh, we all share a lot of ancestors and if, if more of us knew that, it wouldn't necessarily uh, end all conflicts or anything like that, but it might help contextualize them and and, um, and at least uh, put the the matters back into to truthful terms rather than those of um, disputed narratives that you know that are not necessarily true. Yeah, I mean this is personal to me too. Um, seeing those migration patterns. So you in your talk you mentioned a tweet by Benjamin Netanyahu, and um, he ha- was claiming the Palestinians were interlopers, as you say. So, I mean, it was very current, very political. And I want to be was clear, actually, he, he, was, he was intimating it. He, it, it, was, it was very much, and it's part of a kind of, you know, we, we've seen this kind of um, discourse. It was a dog whistle intimation. So he was strictly talking about Philistines, who are an ancient people, but the implication, and it was well heard by others, um, was about modern Palestinians. But go on, sorry. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Yeah, so being a bit subtle... And um, hiding behind that more ancient population. Um, well, for me, you know, I grew up Mormon, and um, so there's the Book of Mormon, right? Claiming that the Native Americans, um, which I think is just a big insult to them, um, that they came from Israel, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's just, <laughs> it's, it's not what the DNA shows. So. Um. That's right. And, and it shouldn't have to. It's funny, like, there, there's a, uh, I, you know, we could, we could go in a, so many different directions. But, um, but, but the way that I'll take that little part of the world, that little crucible of, of, um, of the Eastern Mediterranean, you know, Palestine, the Levant, and everything else, uh, that has become contested in so many ways. So you see now, uh, we've seen over the past year, um, you know, controversy about about Black Americans uh, wanting to claim part of the legacy uh, that's you know written into those biblical stories from that part of the world, and I just think it's really it's a shame that that um, myths from that one part of the world, by by the luck of history, have become so dominant around much of the planet. You know, it, it, Korea is now heavily Christianized, and we have. Um, we have Americans whose ancestors were enslaved and, and, you know, their own cultures, which had rich and wise and, and, you know, and compassionate cultural traditions, those were sidelined in favor of biblical narratives that now people want a piece of. And I just think, I think it's a shame that we focus so much on that, on the, you know, the narratives from that part of the world. Ah, uh, 
Yeah, great point. Really great point. Um, you know, this reminds me, I can't remember if this happened um, when we were still on our program, but I remember a New York Times article about, um, I think it was Papua New Guinea, and they had done some looking at some ancient DNA. I think these were, you know, skulls or bones that have been, um, people have been dead for a long time. Um, but the scientists were trying to say, you know, look for the migration pattern, how the people got there. And it was conflicting with, so this is somewhat close to your cultural point about, you know, wanting a piece of the Bible. Um, but it was conflicting with the cultural tradition in Papua New Guinea. They felt like mm -hmm. they were from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> um, you know, anthropologists were saying, uh, science isn't everything. And um, we have to respect these stories and traditions. Um, and I, I'm just like, how do you argue with the truth, you know? But yeah. I can understand it'd be uncomfortable. Well, that's, I, I think you make a great point here that, um, you know, folk history can be right and it can preserve a lot of, uh, of true lore, but it can also be fantastical. And, you know, no, no culture has a monopoly on twisting the past or, or you know, false false guesses about cosmology or about our, our origins etc and i think it's respectful to engage people with what the evidence does tell us but also to remember that we're coming at it in science um through a through a methodology that is often run roughshod over people who didn't you know who were considered subjects rather than participants in science mm. or or yes. subject sub, subjects of uh, of colonialism or of um you know, of religious evangelism, et cetera. And that that still, uh, that often still kind of like warps our own thinking as scientists about how to approach this. This, this has popped up, you know, in, in, in not just in the, you know, the genetics of, uh, of human ancestry and, and contests over Native American um, burial remains, et cetera, where scientists want access, but people uh, rightly want their, you know, their own forebears. Uh, they, 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 have access to them before science does can claim it. Um, but it's also popped up elsewhere where we forget about the past, you know, the history of scientific abuses of people and how they're going to come back to bite us and things like vaccine policy now. Uh, and that's been a, a, you know, something to think about, I think, during the pandemic as well, you know. That it was too people, draconian. Well, and, and pe I think people often forget, I, many people in my circles uh, assume that, they, you know, that many anti-vax people are privileged, uh, just, you know, uh, heedlessly right-wing people who are just uh, Luddites about science but otherwise have, have it good in life. And I think they forget how many families and how many communities remember real scientific abuses in the past involving things like uh, vaccines. And, and that's here in the American context. Um, there's lots of examples of abuses of especially black and brown people, but poor people generally. In scientific settings, and then if you think about even more recent settings, like you know, how, how was Osama bin Laden captured and killed? It was in part through a false vaccination campaign. Hmm. And so those kinds of you know they they may seem contingently excusable in the time, but they are going to come back to bite us. And I think we've learned we're, we're learning that again through some of the pandemic policies that overreached, um, and that where where science and even scientists we were complicit, I think, too often in. Uh, in abdicating our 
critical thinking about research that was being touted by the CDC or, or folks like that, uh, circling the wagons on the possibilities that science may, you know, re- research may have played a role in the emergence of a virus uh, that has killed so many people, et cetera. We need to, to be careful not to make those same mistakes again, but I think we've, we've been doing it recently. It's a great point. It's a great point. Um, yeah, when you're talking about the anti-vaxxers, um, there was a kind of, uh, I don't know, arrogance, naivety. Um, but at the same point, you're, uh, you're at the same time, you're talking about science having an arrogance. Um, yeah. Science could be more humble um, and they could work more with um, people who have um, other experiences. And, you know, I had um, a lot of my family members didn't vaccinate. And um, I was hanging out with them. And it, it was tough at first. But, you know, they were just telling me, I don't want, you know, I, I, I feel like it's invasive in my body. And ultimately, I thought, okay, if I'm a free-thinking liberal, I believe in independence um, and freedom. They have a point. Now, these are people who live in southern Utah. And one of the things that they brought up was, you know, that they were in the fallout from nuclear testing from southern Nevada. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's been acknowledged in Congress. There's funding set up uh, for people who have been affected by that. And so, you know, it is it is kind of a uh, weariness of the government. Um, and I just did my best to say, hey, I'm involved in this and this and this and this. I'm trying to relate facts. But I became very understanding. Yeah, and that's important. That that that, uh, and it's not just human empathy. It actually, you know, recognizing the validity of those communal memories, and and uh, and how they reflect the complicity of scientists with government. So it's not just government. You know, scientists have to play a role in these these, these abuses. So they have at least they, they don't have to, but they have. Um, and only by fully acknowledging that and, and and trying to really make amends for it can we start to earn back. Or earn trust in the first place from communities who've long lacked it, and then earn back some of the trust that we've lost. And can we, on on this topic, I think you know a, a really telling example where this goes beyond just personal autonomy. If we can talk about it for a minute, so one of the, one of the big things that we did here in the U.S. You know, with the pandemic policy that we that other countries didn't do, peer countries did not do this, is we refused to recognize just overwhelming evidence that people who managed to survive a first infection, healthy people who survive a first infection, tend to remain resilient to reinfection for a while. And that that resilience is at least on par with that of vaccination itself. And so that, I think there was a lot of fear in this country on the progressive side and on you know, the Biden administration side to really fully acknowledge that for fear that people would just not get vaccinated, that they would instead want to get infected and take natural their chances immunity. on sur- right, uh, yeah. so-called natural immunity. On uh, Now, the point, of course, is that you have to survive that first infection to, to get resilient. And so <laughs> vaccination is still safer, right? But our policies did not let those folks, say, work as healthcare workers. If they didn't, if, let's say somebody uh, survived an infection, and uh, didn't want to get vaccinated per their autonomy, to your point. Uh, there were policies in place, and for a long time, you know, from, from the federal side, uh, from the top, that they would not be allowed into workplaces, uh, so care, healthcare settings, for example, or places like that. That is perverse, because in the, the Omicron 
uh, wave when so many more people died again. Uh, healthcare teams were really short-staffed, and those people would have been the safest people to be working in those healthcare wards at the time. They they had a, a topped-up immunity to the current strains of viruses. Uh, they were, in fact, somewhat more resistant to that current strain than people who have been vaccinated many months before with an earlier strain. And yet our policy precluded them from working, and how many people died as a result of that? That's just an inexcusable head-in-the-sand policy, and whereas uh, peer countries like Germany and others elsewhere, rich countries that, that fared better in the pandemic than, than we as a rich country did, uh, they recognized that that survivor's resistance to further infection long before, and they wrote it into their policies. And we should have done the same thing. We didn't, and it was just out of fear. I have to say, just talking about the pandemic in general, uh, it surprised me. It surprised me. You know, here I am covering news in the world of genomics and medicine, and a virus comes along and shuts the whole planet down. <laughs> and I just thought we were further along than that. Hey, Theral, didn't we talk about viruses in our, our old podcast? All the time. You should have you known. We, we talked about how wily they were and how amazing they were, but yeah. Well, you know, the, you it, know I think we probably covered Ebola before that. We did. And Ebola and, it, and it's seven, it, what Ebola does with seven genes. Can you imagine that? Like just uh, seven, all it has is seven genes. It can wreak such havoc with us. So, so where did you come down on the whole lab leak thing? Oh, I, I think the, the, all evidence on both sides is, is uh, purely circumstantial. So, you know, the, and if you hear otherwise, uh, it's just people trying to spin or, or basing in their priors. What I mean by that is um, in, until we have RNA or DNA sequence data from the wild and from labs before the pandemic, where they, you know, it's, it's good provenance data that we can reliably date to labs before the pandemic in that, in that area or even elsewhere – and or other or wild animals before that, until we have uh, data that suggests where the first strains that entered the human population in the, in the big way uh, came from, uh, everything else is circumstantial. The, the, the geographic pattern of the first infections is strongly shaped by what we call ascertainment bias mm. in science, which is basically looking under the lamppost. Um, yes. And and it's un unclear whether that was by direction, you know, that, that because of the, the earlier SARS-1 outbreak had been from a market that people looked at a market first, or it's unclear whether there was any further sampling elsewhere in Wuhan or anything, or, you know, it, we just don't know enough from what's been released. And then the same on, on the lab side, we, we heard this, you know, there was supposed to be this recent bombshell about, uh, or, you know, lab workers at WIV getting sick before the official announcement of the pandemic, but we haven't, first of all, setting, you know, concerns about patient and personal privacy aside, like naming those people and doxing them in public is unethical. But, uh, you know, there are lots of respiratory infections that can make, give, that can mimic the symptoms of what turned out to be SARS-CoV-2. So we should not jump to any conclusions from that either. All, all the evidence on both sides, as far as I can tell, is just purely circumstantial. And so is the well, speculation. Yeah. Uh, so we don't and, know. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. And, don't and know. probably never will. I, I don't know about that. I, th I think that, you know, um, we may get better and better methods to, to sequence and even estimate the age of DNA and RNA samples found out in the world. 
um, there, there there are some interesting ways to, you you know you can start to do that um, try to, to to try to guess at the date of things. Um, so I I wouldn't preclude learning more over time that would uh, start to give us better than circ- circumstantial evidence. But but um, but right now that's all we have. The big success in our field has probably been the ability to track the variants, right? Sequence it from wastewater. And, um, and, and now going forward, we'll, we'll just be much up on, much more up on that. I, I think there's a project to sequ- sequence the wastewater of San Francisco as just a surveillance, right? For future yep. bugs. And, and so the whole sequencing community, I think they've done a lot there. We know exactly what strain is popular at what time. Yeah. And I think, um, and, you know, helping the public understand that, and you probably discussed this in some of your shows about that, is it, when you look carefully, out in the world, you find things that are, that are surprising. So when Chris Mason first started looking at at bacteria and other bugs that live in the New York City subway system, they found scraps of DNA that suggested plague bacterium, and that made a, a kind of a big splash—not a big splash. It made a, it made a splash in, in the pop science um, press at that point. That you know, oh, is, is plague in New York? And what people forget is that this is just when we're starting to look. So it's it, it's not like. Uh, the Could plague bacteria hap- happened to show up as you know just the same month that Chris Mason started sequencing in New York. Like that stuff is <laughs> it's just it's around us, you know. And so keep, people should take grains of salt when they learn more. But yeah, it's going to be really good to to do more um, to more to do more microbial and other kinds of monitoring, especially as people start to it, you know we're going to face an era of bioweapons that really where people really do start to use these things in in bad ways and we're also going to see this uh technology used for conservation efforts to to you know learn more about whether a rare a, a rare set of organisms that we're worried about conservation wise is still out there and how much diversity they have so there's all kinds of uses of this you know environmental sequencing that you're talking about but the issue of security that you bring up this this is definitely something um that we have to face in in the field of DNA, um, you know the the pot, I mean, for instance, you know people can get a hold of, of synthesizers, desktop synthesizers, and um, go to town. Yeah, yeah, it's it's ever more scary, and 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 so you know we may. This is one of those classic, I think, um, kind of uh, kid who cried wolf scenarios where you know the the. If people who are 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 claiming that SARS-CoV-2 was a bioweapon or something like that, um, they they may be off their hinges about that, but that does not mean that there won't be future efforts to do things like that. And so we, we you know we, we shouldn't let the the folly of today's conspiracy theories blind us to uh, serious concerns about oh, our fields and its its place in you know future bad stuff. How easy, really, would it be for someone to create a virus similar to COVID? Um, and and well, you know, it's like some amateur in a lab. Is that really going to happen? Uh, I don't. I don't know. Um, I think that the the tools available change, and they do get better. Um, a couple, a couple of uh, caveats, though. One is that the, you know, playing around with these things, the people who, you know, have tried to do this with existing uh, bad bugs like anthrax before, it's it's dangerous and, and often distribution. Get it, you know, I, it, it's hard to distribute things if they could make it in a lab. Um, it, it's hard to 
to hone something to be ex- um, extremely effective at, at hurting one set of organisms and not another, et cetera. So I, I think it, it's not easy stuff. Uh, that said, you know, an, a, a serious research effort designed to do it could could create some really dangerous things. I I, I guess one one if point a country wanna, decided to do that. Yeah, I guess one point I want to make is that. Um, the idea of ethnically targeted bioweapons is uh, – uh, that is um, – the, the genomics just of, of people just don't support that being easy. Oh, okay. Um, this, this is like what we get from RFK Jr.? Yes. And, and we, I, a colleague and I are writing a paper in, in response to some of that stuff. But um, basically, you know – People share too much variation across populations to to easily target many people in one population without killing many people in another. And um, and and uh, I think that there's a, a lot of overheated pop science or not pop science, but overheated kind of social media discussion of this stuff um, that is laced with conspiracism and things like that. And and I, I, uh, that's. That's not really happening, and it's not, as far as I know, and it's not on the horizon. It's it's not readily doable um, from a population genetics perspective. Okay, that's that's very interesting. That's I think that's really good to to know. Uh, you know, just to finish up on the whole lab lake thing. <clears throat> um, I remember we had a journalist on from the New York Times, Carl Zimmer, early on in the pandemic, and this lab lake question had come up. And he said something that I totally agreed with. And he's like, it wouldn't be unheard of for there to be a zoontic origin, you know, transferred from animals. <laughs> I mean, this is the way it's been happening for millions of years. So mm-hmm. we can imagine that. And you have to respond in basically the same way. And going forward, um, as far as surveillance, we have to kind of do the same things. So he felt like the conflict itself uh, was getting blown out of proportion. Uh, I I would I mean Carl's a, a great colleague uh, and a, an amazingly insightful writer, um, but and I think he would probably acknowledge if we extended the conversation that there is also a long history of lab leaks of pathogens hmm. and, and of cover-ups of lab leaks of pathogens. They're not always exposed uh, in ways to the public that to, to help them understand. And so, uh, in terms of like precedent, when people talk about the, the uh, Precedent of zoonotic spillover, and of course, yes, throughout our history, but there is also ample precedent of uh, of lab leaks in urban centers and um, and people getting sick and dying as a result of that. Okay, all right, yeah. So so yeah, to be mindful of both. Um, the uh, you were just talking about the scientific community owning up or covering up. And, you know, I did a show recently with uh, the president of ASHG, American Society of Human Genetics, and they had just put out a, an apology for being involved in eugenics. And I guess what surprised me is it was much more recent than I, <laughs> I thought they were going to talk about. You know, I thought they'd go clear back um, to, you know, World War II days. But no, it was going clear up into the 60s and 70s. And and so then you ask, okay, well, why apologize now? But it's cool that they ha- that they have. Um, what what did you think about that? Uh, high time. 
I think that there, I guess one thing that concerns me about these things is that sometimes they're more about ass covering than about uh, the hard work of redressing. Like political um, carefulness. Yeah, and, and a, a loosenality there might be kind of um, land acknowledgments where, you know, a speaker at, at a place like Stanford might acknowledge, you know, make a show of acknowledging um, who, to whom the land belonged before it was appropriated to by, you know, to, to make a university by people whose ancestors had come colonially. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't know how that gesture, that, and that's, you know, it's important to acknowledge it, and the knowledge is important, but is there any redress? Is there follow-through to actually... Uh, to undo the appropriation of the land itself and to, and to uh, bring back a fair stake in it and, and what goes on in it and, and in the decision-making about it to the people whose ancestors it was taken from. And I don't see that uh, enough. And, and I'm not sure, you know, and the ASHG thing, it may be your, an unfair analogy, I don't know. Um, but we need more than – I guess what I'm saying is we need more than the acknowledgement of, uh, of past eugenic abuses. But we, we need more effort into redressing uh, the results of, of that, that kind of um, – Yeah. No, I understand that. Um, so that we don't think it's just um, for political correctness. Um, and, you know, there were some who pushed back um, that politics shouldn't actually go into scientific uh, – um, studies, you know, at least at the ASHG level. <laughs> but it uh, does. It, it inevitably does. That's okay, I was waiting point, for right? you to laugh yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, because Sorry. you and I are of the same view that um, science itself exists in a social situation and, um, you know, proceeds uh, based on funding, for one thing. Um, who might be running the country? <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. but at the same time, there is there is science that does. Ne- I do believe in science uncovering the truth, no matter the society. I I think it's great. So you know, it's it's nice to think of the truth as sort of like the the goal on the horizon to which we're sailing, and we and we may acknowledge that we'll never quite get there, but we also must acknowledge that we can get we can go off course both from. You know, winds misleading us off course, but also from steering off course, from steering elsewhere ourselves. You know, a, a faulty rudder or a, or or pointing the wrong way, and science has often done that. And you know, not to 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 um, well, you know, the pandemic again is is the most recent example of this that comes to mind. But, but I've seen so many colleagues who are really sensible, brilliant, shrewd, incisive scientists. Again, set down those tools of critical thinking, set them aside in order to applaud or support policies based on faulty data that in a much lower stakes setting, like let's say, you know, CDC publishes an observational study that's that's confounded by many, um, many variables that they don't talk about that likely that likelier explain the study's result than what they're saying. And those might be, you know, that healthy, the people who tend to get vaccinated are already healthy or, you know, these kinds of questions or the schools where, uh, where vaccine or mass policies are in place have, are, differ from those where they're not in ways that, that maybe better explain the results of what they're touting. And in any so-called lab meeting, so any, any lab out there, they have typically weekly lab meetings where they bring a paper in 
And the goal of the lab meeting is to pick the paper apart in, in a, not in a mean way, but in a way that, that sort of exercises our, our critical thinking skills and makes us think through the questions the paper is trying to answer, the methods that are available that they used or that they didn't use. It's an exercise in honing our scientific chops, um, both for the question the paper was about, but for other work as well. And colleagues who would, you know, in the very low stakes setting of picking apart a a humble paper published in a new journal that didn't have any any societal obvious societal import, they would tear it apart for these kinds of confounds, or you know lack of reporting a confidence interval, only reporting the, you know the central number and not the uncertainty around that number, et cetera. Mm. The kinds of of errors we saw just rampantly in CDC uh, so-called science during the pandemic. But they, we, we, a lot of scientists in, in our field put aside those critical thinking skills in order to let, uh, let that, that CDC announcement guide policy. And that, to me, is a tremendous abdication that, again, I think it, it may have seemed the worthwhile compromise in the moment to get people to get vaccinated or to, to do whatever. But in the long run, it undermines the trust that is already eroding in science and that we need to earn ongoing and, and earn, you know, earn in the first place, but also keep earning. And that really scares me because the next pandemic, you know, may hit young people a lot more than this one did. It may, it, it may mute. And there are plenty of viruses that mutate a lot faster than SARS-CoV-2. Um, it, it may be a bioweapon there, you know, it, it could be a lot worse than this one and not, and I know everyone's tired of talking about the pandemic, but um, I'm really worried about science there. You know, it, it just calls to mind, you know, that old saying, like, you know, the king is dead, long live the king. It's, it, it feels a little bit like science is dead. Hmm. Wow. Long live science, right? And I, I don't mean that literally, you know, or, or, or fully. No, but I mean, I, I, I'm sensing that you're, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're beating up a bit on at least the scientific community, not particularly the scientific well, process. Well, we, um, we but expect... you're, I can see you're doing it for, uh, for, you know, a better reputation in the future. Well, yeah. Well, and also just for better, like we're here to help to really help society longer term. Like that's why society supports science is for us to understand the world accurately, the truth accurately, and to help, you know, other people uh, make policy accordingly. And when we when we abdicate that, that critical thinking that's crucial to our work in the service of a short term policy or whatever it may be, we're, we're undermining that aim, but also that the trust that we've managed to build up over time and and not you know again not to beat up on us too much but i think it's very easy for us to blame conspiracy-minded lay folk or politicians etc for the kinds of abuses of the truth that happen but i i just want us to look in the mirror and understand that that we in science are have been complicit and we need to uh we need to understand that and and think about that going forward in our own work that i guess that's what i'm getting at cool no i i, I absolutely get that i appreciate that um, you know, science does have a way of actually um, moving on, you know, the whole falsifiable theory. Even if they're not in some social group, somebody's going to do, you know, the better um, study. So I guess I feel kind of um, confident. Optimistic, uh, yeah. Optimistic, yeah, about the future of science just because the process itself has just worked so well, you know, for a few hundred years. Yes. And And I also have to just push back on people who – or, you know, anti-science. Um, I, I think this is just, 
I've thought about it a lot. I, I think it's just a um I, I do think it's natural. I think there's a human tendency to resist knowledge. You know, science is about gaining knowledge. It, do you think is it that people want to resist knowledge or they want to resist giving up um, something they think in order to, to – uh, to, you know, do, they, do they resist change in some oh, sense? Oh, okay. So, yeah. So maybe is this – yeah, you're the perfect one to talk to about this <laughs> um, because I've thought a lot about it lately. Um, why do – I mean I do it. You know, why do humans resist knowledge? And so you're kind of putting forth a theory there of because it's going to force us um, to change a belief, and it's very hard to change beliefs. Well, that that may be circular. Like, why is it hard to change beliefs? I wonder if it's hard to change. I, I wonder if it feels rough to change beliefs because we're we fear what will like. We we have a world, a little personal world, and and a, and a view of the future that, in some sense, is based on beliefs that we hold, and changing those kind of in in the moment before you think through everything, and and even if you do. It can throw all of that into chaos. It can it can feel like, well, if I if I give this up, what does that mean? You know, is the future going to be a horrific future versus the one that I was hoping or planning for? I, do you think it might be something like that? That it's just sort of throwing into question um, one one's uh, one's little world. Hi, this is Theral Timpson. I'd like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter at www.fivewiththeral.com to be notified of each new 5 o'clock podcast, as well as new articles coming out each week. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's show. So here's the question. How sympathetic are you or empathetic to um, people who are racists? You know, I mean, we can go we can go different ends of the spectrum. I know, you know, there's different ends. I mean, uh, at the at the kind of bottom end, do you think we do you think progressives call people racist too fast, um, um, or or do you think that this is really good thing that we're doing? And and um, genetics has actually helped. You know, we were talking earlier about the mosaic that everyone is. And you can you can say this better than me, but um, you know skin color is has become one proxy um, for the social construct of race. But the race, and this is what ASHG has put out: the race does not is not justified genetically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing. First of all, uh, the way the genetic variation works, there there aren't there just aren't discrete groups that that split, and that goes at the level of so-called race, which is sort of like you know when when people look at the varieties of people and 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 put them into several, you know, several big groups and, um, and for, you know, often set to the side that, that many people don't fit readily into any of those groups. Um, it holds at that level. It holds even at the level of species. So, so there really is no rigorously definable definition for species that, are, that fully accords common sense. And we could get into that. In another uh, time, I but, think that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, but, the evolutionary theory is, is still an open question. <laughs> Well, it, it, not questioning right, evolution, but um, the way it works. Yeah, well, there just there just aren't, aren't uh, hard boundaries between groups. I guess is what it boils down to. But I, I think to your point, to, you know, your question about empathy for people who are whole bigots or bigoted people who have bigoted views. I think yes. I mean, I think it's always important. First of all, all of us have to some degree or another xenophobia. 
reflexively probably ingrained in us uh, even without training and then certainly compounded by the cultures that we grew up in and the, the prejudices that, that kind of last over generations and we inherit even subtly. Um, like so like I, what you're saying there, is it's a very old thing in humans um, to kind of judge based on the tribe. You know, yeah. it's it's a quick security method. But but I think it's also important to remember that just as just as uh, as old, and just as uh, as part of us, is our our ability to see beyond that, and our our urging of each other and ourselves to see beyond that. Th- those are very so called human and probably even before human traits as well to see be, to see to explore. And respect and and even you know have great affection for beings that are outside of those those boundaries we may initially fear, um, and, and I guess uh, you know one th- I guess you know one one way to think about that is like for, from my recent experience this uh, TED talk about you know what genetics reveals about the history of Palestine in many ways I you know. I feel like shows like yours, podcasts, need to have more Palestinian voices. Mm. Uh, many of the podcasts I hear about Israel and Palestine, even from, you know, even with uh, inclusive views like my own on on the, on the question, the guests are often Jewish in an American setting because uh, you know American Jews are sort of have a lot of cultural access. That's a great American point. Palestinians less so. But when I when I made the talk, you know, I knew that you know it's it's still something I need to talk about because in my extended family circles, uh, who a lot of dear wonderful people who who are very compassionate and have very compassionate views about about things like race and about peoples different from us, those uh, those that compassion often stops. It's it's starkly blinkered. When it comes to the question of Palestinian rights or Palestinian humanity, and many of the same people who were marching on the right side of history in the civil rights struggles here in the U.S. for black rights, for for Native and Latino and other other non-white uh, folks' rights in, in the '60s and later, um, many of those same folks are are excusing and you know monolithizing. Uh, excusing, you know, the, the the segregation of Palestinians from their own homeland in order to let our, our folks live there. And, and in the process, the monolith thinking about um, about Palestinian people as if they uh, as if they were a seething mass of of hatred against us rather than individual people just like us who have, you know, it, this, if we prick them, do they not bleed? They're pursuing science and art and literature and trying to make it in a world that has uh, has them in exile, just like we were. And that has not uh, come through, you know, into the thinking of many people in my family who I know are not bigoted to the core about everyone and everything. So I think to that extent, like, you know, your question about empathy for, for bigotry or for, for bigots we have to have that. That's the whole point of this discourse is to is to help people see beyond um, the blinkers that we still have. And, all, and I'm, I, I'm sure I still have my own blinkers that people, you know, who I talk with can help me see beyond at some point. Uh, so you're very good at um, working to keep your own house in order. I have to say, Nathan, that's a very commendable thing, you know, um, 
looking at the problems within your own local um, community? It, well, it's one place to start, right? And and if if you know, sometimes people deflect on those questions. They say, "Well, uh, take take Israel for example. Why aren't you out there making talks about you know about Chinese oppression of Uyghur people, or about um, you know about any other number of great you know horrific oppression of people around the world?" And part of my answer to that is that uh, you know my voice has more. It, it gets heard more within a network of people who have a vested interest in Israel and Palestine than cool. in other parts of the world. And that's yeah, that what makes matters. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. Um, but it is a complicated topic, um, you know, which we're working our way through. When I, when I just started seeing um, the studies about human ancestry and the fact that, you know, a, a person – uh, in Africa could be have more different genetics than the, another one living across the river from them than they would with someone in, say, Northern Europe. Um, that this was like, well, you know, it's obvious. You know, there's really um, no well, genetic let, basis for race. We should just be able to go on down the road. Let's just accept well, that and go on down the road. But I yeah, was... Let's be, I, want to, I want to be careful with how that that that, okay. um, that, that, that point example? is understood. Yeah. So... It, um, when when we say that that within uh, for among people, the most diversity per person is within parts of Africa, especially you know the the long thickly settled parts of Africa, Southwest Africa, South Africa, and, and West Africa. Okay, so um, the, so and, Africa works very good for that example. Well, and but what it does not mean that that a person you know a randomly person chosen chosen person say in Benin uh, maybe overall more genetically different from a person, a, a randomly chosen fellow Benin, per, you know, long Benin family person across the street than from a person in uh, in Northern Europe. What it means is that the two chromosomes that that person in Benin has from mom and dad, they're going to have many more differences from each other, those two copies of a given chromosome. Mm-hmm. Than the two copies of a, of that chromosome in any person, pretty much any person whose family was long European. So, um, I'm, I know I'm getting wonky there. No, 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 no. You I got into this in your zoo talk, your zoo right. talk with the HLA chromosome, uh, right. which is something you study. By the way, you you have a business called Root, which is um, uh, helps people get tested for HLA, and it would be interesting to hear about that. Um, sure. But 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 first of all, you were pointing out there's there can be such differences on that HLA gene that a person might actually be more similar <laughs> to the uh, was a chimpanzee that was in the so um, every not just a person but every person so every one of us you Theral me um, every one of us in in those HLA genes has a cop ha, has you know e- each copy of our HLA is. Is closely, more literally, more closely related to the copy of HLA carried by some non-human great apes than to the copy carried by some other people. <laughs> See, yeah, isn't that crazy? So, That's and, crazy. and the same is true for the other. So, the, say, the same is true for every say gorilla. Every gorilla, their each copy that that they carry of HLA, which is called, it's called MHC in them. Um, each copy that they carry is closer to some people's copies than to some other gorillas' copies, and all of the, you know. I don't want to go too wonky on this, but to your point, 
all of this is another example of how uh, diversity doesn't fall into neat splits. There are no neat splits that neatly divide you know, one so-called race from another, or even, in this case, one species from another. But what the qualifier I want to add is that this is for HLA. So the rest of your genome is much more similar to mine or to any other person's genome than to a gorilla's or a chimpanzee's. Okay, or any it's just other that one chromosome. Yeah, well, it's the, it's the one part of chromosome. And it, there are others. So blood, HLA, sorry, the ABO blood group is another one. So, you know, we have uh, this ABO blood group where some people are type A, some people, because they have two A copies. Mm-hmm. Some people have two B copies. Some people have an A and a B. Some people have neither. That blood group is also shared with other non-human, with non-human grade apes. So if you're, let's say that you're type A, you've got two A's, there are plenty of non-human primates out there who also have two A's. And in that part of your genome, you and them are more closely related to each other than you and I'm, you know, I may be. So uh, I've got a B copy that you're, you're more closely related to that, to that gorilla with their A copy than to my human B copy. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I've, well, I've always known that I had some gorilla in me. Um, <laughs> not that I have hair on my back. I don't have any. <laughs> it's more the way I pound my chest, you it, know, when I it, wake up. <laughs> it, it's it's your silvery glow. It's the silver back. Uh, oh, okay. yes. It's, that's where I get my silver. Silver foxness. Uh, <laughs> you know, before, let's talk about the H, uh, HLA in your business. But before, I just to wrap up this whole race thing, um, you know, it's so complicated. And the other day I was listening to NPR news. And so I think it was after this recent Jacksonville shooting, you know, which targeted black people particularly. And even the reporter, and this is an NPR reporter, so, you know, it doesn't get any more sensitive than that, um, um, started talking about certain communities, you know, had to recover or had to uh, do this or do that. I wasn't even focused on the verb. It just when she said certain communities. That stood yeah, the, out to the, me. the use of this noun community. Yeah. Well, and it, it meant the it meant the racial community, you know. Yeah. And so I think one of the hard things there is if there's no genetic basis for race, then why do we always talk about these communities in social life? Now it's usually done in a more positive manner, and then it's okay, right? And and you and I know that there's been a lot of studies based on people's, well, it's now called ancestry or population. Um, but we would call it a racial community um, we, we, to find out if they're more susceptible yeah. to sickle cell anemia or and even how to treat them better with personalized medicine. Right. Well, the the point that you make is personalized, right? So the, the one of the great potentials of DNA is to transcend the to conventional kind of like blurry paint with a broad brush approach to to medicine, mm-hmm. right? So n- not every I mean, actually, fairly few black people in in the U.S. or elsewhere uh, have sickle cell trait or, you know, much less anemia. Nonetheless, uh, many more people within that set of families, if you want to think of it as a set of families who who share a lot of cultural traditions, a lot of uh, they're intermingled in terms of recent ancestry. So the sense of, you know, in, in that sense, there's a communal. Yeah, there's there's communal cohesion, I think, that we would be hard pressed to deny among people where pe- people understand. I'm, I'm sure when you go home 
and hang out with folks from home, that there are, are there's shared understanding and kind of the nuance of, of Mormon culture or the variety of cultures within Mormonism that an outsider would miss if they went home to dinner with you. And you might take them aside and say, you know, this, why were we laughing about this? Well, it was a joke based on on this subtlety of Mormon doctrine or something like that. Right. We would get right? it. We would get it. Yeah, based on our family history. You know, I've thought about this a lot with um, be, with being a gay person. And uh-huh. for years I thought, oh, I, I'm part of the gay community. I need to go hang out in gay bars. I need to do gay participate in gay culture, which, you know, I, I, I quickly realized that I was questioning whether there was such a thing as gay culture. So I've been kind of on the fence about this. Um, because I, I do like to have a couple of gay friends around. You know, we, we can talk in ways um, that I just don't with straight friends. Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, I don't really buy into the fact that, um, you know, that gay people, that there's a gay culture. That I think that's a little bit um, yeah. um, dangerous, actually. <laughs> it's probably, it's, it, am I wrong that it's dangerous as a singular, at, you know, culture versus cultures, but it's also dangerous in sort of... Uh, in assuming that it actually has any edges to it, like it, you know, it, it's it probably is is uh, it's a part of a watercolor, right, of cultures. I mm. would think it's it's a little spot. I don't know. I'm guessing from my own experience with with cultures. But if we give a chair, if we think of that word communities as like in a charitable way, mm-hmm. is it maybe more expansive? Because it, it sometimes it grates on me too. I have to say, like when I hear com- people say communities rather than just people. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, I, you'll hear that a lot on NPR. You'll hear like uh, the new law may affect, you know, uh, LGBTQ communities. And you could, like they could just say people. You don't have to say communities there. It's sort of a, a hand wavy uh, reflex now. But yeah, in a charitable like way, that. it's also more flexible than a term like race, right? You, uh, it, it, it allows – one could be a member of many, many different communities that are kind of like different uh, on different dimensions in one's life. Uh, if there is a gay community, if there's a, um, you know, a musician community that you, you would be part of it, there. Or if there's a podcaster community, so in some sense, it's a, it's more like uh, you know how like uh, things get tags on on if you go on, uh, on Pinterest media. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, or Pinterest or something like that. You know, a, a given piece of art might have a bunch of different tags on it, or Instagram might have a photo might have tags. I mean, communities in some sense are like the tags that we feel uh, some part of, or that you know we want to learn more about, or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. We kind of put out that um, tag, and this is the way we can connect uh, with other people. It you know, it's just a practical way to connect. Yeah, yeah no. it's it's one one kind of collective uh, one one group of people who understand the world through some particular shared experience or shared outlook that can be useful to to clue into and and in some sometimes to you know in gather with. So what's going on with root? Well, root. So uh, for listeners who who may not know about root, so root the idea is to long-term to bring people genomic insights about themselves um, for free and the science grounded insights that are really, you know, sensible and really anchored in evidence um, that, that uh, do better than what they can get through conventional consumer genomics. Um, I, for a while, for several years, I, I looked around for potential people to fund that with and to get it off the ground 
through a conventional venture capital funding mm-hmm. um, lookout. And I, I think I've become ever more jaded and um, and reticent to do it that way. That I, I feel like everything that I look at in science that gets <coughs> excuse me where uh, corporate funding is part of it, the corporate mission ultimately always warps things. Um, the and it it's you know the, or especially the profit mission. <coughs> Sorry. Yeah. Okay. And so you want to keep you, 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 the mission here is very important to you and, uh, you want to make for sure it happens, which is to share, share, um, genetic information with people. Is there a certain kind or is it just, um, all kinds of genetic information? I, I mean, to, to the point of our conversation here, and I think in others that you posted, uh, I mean, DNA can, can open light in so many different directions in our lives for every, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, forensics and what it can do in, in the world of, of say solving crimes, I'm you know there there are downsides to that too. There are ways in which DNA is already getting companies are already trying to uh, overstate what DNA can tell them for like a police sketch, and that's going to end up victimizing people the same way that policing has always victimized people. So, but uh, DNA can open light in many directions. So let's let's start there. Um, I would like hopefully to work with people to bring those insights to the public in ways that are well-grounded and that, uh, again, kind of earn back trust in science and earn more trust in science going forward as, as DNA becomes a part of life for more people so that they can take it, take their own uh, t- DNA data, which are going to become more and more public and hard to control, but take charge of it as much as they can the way that they would take charge of other kinds of personal data that mean something and that, you know, put, that, that are both useful but also um, potentially exploitable. And I think I, I'm, you know, still, I still am quite worried that in the long run, uh, that DNA data is going to be exploited by companies, by governments more than it will serve the people who, to whom it belongs. So the, the, the core aim of root is to, to help forestall that and help people take advantage, you know, take or take charge of their own data, how that happens Again, now I'm really thinking that that venture capital funding is not the way to do it. Seeing what what that does in the pharma world, what that does in, in the consumer genetics world, uh, dis, is dismaying. Hmm. So I've been taking a step back and thinking, okay, is there a way to do it as a, a not for profit in some sense, uh, perhaps affiliated with some academic footing? I've been I've been thinking about returning to academia um, in some context in order to make that happen in a more, uh, I guess, equitable and and you know, securely good way, um, rather than by trusting in the the old Silicon Valley ethos of uh, uh, you know of, of do no evil, where eventually the profit motive al- almost always uh, makes that a, a pressingly hard thing to do. Interesting and very cool. Very cool. We have to follow up on this. So the um, you know you're bringing up the issue of privacy. And we talked about this boom in DTC testing, but it's it's tapered off. And my theory is it's because privacy has become – people are becoming more savvy now, right? DNA testing is not so new. And people are thinking more about privacy. It's also related to, you know, people questioning social media, whereas, you know, we used to just eat it up like potato chips. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right onto that. So, I mean, it's it, – People are more savvy about uh, how their information gets exploited, and uh, the novelty—the novelty is—it's not just that the novelty is worn off; it's that, that you know so people have actually learned stuff, and so um, some of the quest for 
knowledge of things that they didn't have, at least for some of the market, that's already been quenched. It's already done. It's already done. Yeah. Now, yeah. So there, you don't need to do it again. I mean, DNA is DNA. Yeah. Well, right. And now there, you know, now there will be more insights going forward about things like gene expression, right? So how does um, how does gene expression change over the course of your life? What can it tell you for for your health status, for your health planning, et cetera? Um, there are all kinds, and, and you know, deeper looks at your at your genome and at the genome of of potentially of ancestors and things like that. So it's it's there's more juice in the lemon of personal genomics and a personal omics generally. Um, but I think to, to your other point, people are, are rightly wary of, you know, who else wants to squeeze that juice out and, and shunt it away from them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I love this, um, what, this information you told me about me being, you know, having the gorilla in me. And, <laughs> and you know, I've always loved talking with you about animals, just animals in general. You know, next week I'm interviewing a scientist from the Broad about dog mm-hmm. genetics. Um, and so, you know, actually animal genetics may become kind of a growing thing. Um, but the the main discussion we've had over the years. Are, are you, is it Eleanor? Uh, uh, yeah. Carlson? Carlson. Okay, great. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. I Sorry. should have known that you would know her. I'm glad that you're you know everybody. <laughs> a great colleague, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we, so we get into this discussion all the time, and um, I guess I'm more comfortable putting animals and humans in hierarchy, you know, with humans at the top because of our intelligence. I mean, <laughs> one of the things that I think could be interesting, I want to talk to uh, Eleanor about, is, you know, there's certain testing which is kind of taboo uh, with uh, humans. Um, which is the idea of, you know, saying one population has more intelligence than another. But when you get into dog breeds, that moral qualm's probably not going to be there, right? Well, one thing that you should talk with, with Eleanor about, but um, to preface it, is that dog genetics are structured quite differently than human genetics. Because we, we have really uh, strongly bred dogs to do particular tasks, and that process, when it happens so quickly, it sweeps along a lot of variation into breed into the bins of each breed, mm-hmm. and that that variation that gets swept along during the the, in the selection for, you know, retrieving ducks from water, or for you know, or for guarding the house, or for sniffing out bladder cancer, or for the the other kinds of just amazingly diverse things that we've uh, bred dogs to do. Um, that structures dog dog uh, genetic variation very differently than people than, than variation in people. Um, that said, I mean you're, you're raising a deeper question, I think, which is that you know we're, are are we comfortable uh, asking questions about human genetics and its relevance to to phenotype? Are we as comfortable doing that in people as we are in other animals? And I think the answer is no. Um, we haven't been as comfortable with that, and I think part of, part of our, our assumption going in has been should be. That that quest, th- those questions, the answers have often in people been presupposed in order to serve the interests of the people doing the asking. That's true, and that's the that's a key danger, right? In in that kind of research is is that we're often willing to jump to conclusions that are not warranted by the data. Where it whereas in livestock breeding, et cetera, the the bottom line, you know, milk yield is is a fairly it, a, it's a simple phenotype, or it's fairly simple. You can you can uh, you can measure it well. You can name what you're measuring, you, uh, et cetera. 
and you you can do it in or with it with a frankly with a profit motive in mind that's very clear whereas in people asking a question about something like intelligence first of all i don't think we yet have uh more than squishy uh subjective and and vague definitions of what we mean by intelligence people have tried you know to to uh systematize that that definitely, you know, what, what we mean by point. intelligence better, but it's yeah. tough. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, as a scientist, my, my inclination is with you that we should be fine with asking those questions and people just as another animals. But I think we should be very wary going in that we have much more uh, vested stake in, 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 from the political side of, of humanity uh, in, in the potential answers to those questions that will much more readily warp our interpretation of data and our choice of methods, et cetera. So we, that, we should be really careful. And that. and let me set the record straight. I, I I'm not for um I you know I'm not like uh, Nick Wade um, who was you know came out and just said populations have different intelligence. I get the I get the um the the uh, basically the the complicated nature of this that you're talking about and the fact that intelligence itself hasn't been defined um, was you know it's basically biased towards one population. Um, those people doing the testing, I think. Um, because intelligence in in a certain group is going to manifest itself in a different way. So, so I'm I, I I'm not um, I'm not on the wagon of saying we should be okay with the testing that has been done on that. What I um, but what I am comfortable with is saying that humans are more intelligent than other animals, <laughs> and this this is actually supports my point. I know you're going to push back. Um, and that is the fact that we have moral qualms about, uh, you know, s- certain kinds of uh, testing. Um, we would never, of course, um, breed humans like we do animals. And doesn't this show? And and you talked about milk production. I mean, we are milking animals for us. Um, and so... There's a big argument for respecting of animals. I, I, I totally get you there. But I just feel comfortable with the fact that there's a hierarchy, you know, that a a cat knows more than a bacteria. So I'm, I'm going to push back on you there. I, and I'm going to push back in one sense, I think, which is that what, what we're calling intelligence, the kinds of problems we're thinking about solving are, are, the, are human-soluble problems that we think about. Uh, when we define ourselves as intelligent, take for example a slime mold. I think I think it's called Dictostelium. I think the slime mold. Um, there's a great, great experiment out there where the uh, researchers basically tasked a slime mold to solve a a long vexing computer science question, which involves like the the optimal uh, way to, to lay out a network or, or a, um, a, a set of Sort of like a subway network or or a uh, path between different between more than two points on a surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a problem that I, th- I think these problems are among the toughest computationally. They maybe even be so-called NPR problems, which have no uh, you know wh- whose solutions sort of defy human logic and and um, and. You know, the the uh, I, I guess are, are in some sense as close to impossible to solve as anything. So um, so hold on a minute. What what's the complicated problem there? 
take take for example, like how to set up a subway network uh, to most efficiently ferry uh, passengers among a set of stations. Okay, what oh should, yes, what, yeah. what should the You're saying it's it's be? it's a very tough engineering problem, right? Yeah. Right, uh, and and effectively you you can you can you can task uh, slime mold to solve this problem by giving it a model of the surface, a map, and then using nutrients to that that it's that it will respond to in its growth, and it solves the problem, as far as I know, better than better than people can. Wow. Wow. Okay. See, this is why I love talking to you. <laughs> and it's just an example of like, you know, what we define as, as, as you know, our intelligence is kind of like the domains of, of problem solving that we're really good at. And then there are other ones that are, that we're not really good at. Like a good example would be, you know, flying and you know, birds can fly. I don't know if that makes them intelligent, but there, but there's a lot of intelligence that goes on in judging how to tilt your wings to land properly and, you know, land on a, on a very skinny branch. That's a really amazing problem to be solving with your brain. Um, there's a lot of calculus and differential equations happening in that bird's brain effectively to solve that problem. And, and it's something that would, you know, if you, you gave you or me wings today, we would not be solving that problem very well. Um, yeah, no, I was just watching birds last night. It's just, I mean, oh, they, they yeah, don't even seem to be looking and they land right on the small twig. And, and let me advise you, speaking of birds, so I, I'm a sucker for for uh, non-human animal videos. I get the, the algorithm has figured me out that. I'll watch any <laughs> okay. non-human animal doing some, you know, really kind of crazy thing. Often that that feels like a little bit human, so you can kind of it's a reminder of of our kinship with uh, with them and how old some of these uh, emotions and and reflexes that we have are. But um, watch some of the the videos of uh, of African gray parrots. So they're this they're kind of parrot that lives in the Congo, and uh, and they can pick up human speech really well. But they're they're not just so-called parroting. Uh, by just, you know, they're not just a little tape recorder playing back speech, but they conceptualize knowledge much as we do. So there's a great one now. There's, I think it's called Apollo and Friends um, of this African gray, learning to differentiate shapes and and materials and colors and sizes of things. And the, the birds understand the difference not just between two colors and and they can tell us, you know, answer a question, but they use simple syntax the way that we do. So they might, you know, they might actually uh, frame their answer with, uh, you know, saying this is red, or they might just say red. Really? Um, They might, they might use a question tone. And moreover, they, they can even understand concepts of what category is the thing the same in or different. What I mean by that is, let's say you t- you you go visit this bird, and you bring them a new gift, something they've never seen before. Let's say you bring them two, um, I don't know, two two toy pianos because you're you're a piano player. So you bring them two toy pianos, and uh, and they've never seen a piano before, um, and one is bigger than the other, um, but they're both blue. Okay, mm-hmm. so. With one of these birds, you might, if they've, if they've trained on size and color, you could ask them, you know, what, what's same? What's the same here between the two? And they would say color because they're both blue. Wow. And you could say, what, what different? What's different between the two? And they would say size. So they, they don't just know the colors, but they know the concept of color as distinct from the concept of size. Where and, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, where I go with this, um, this is why I believe in the a priori. 
Okay, that mm-hmm. that the human the human mind comes knowing certain things. Um, this is you know this was the, basically the philosophy of of Kant um, that we bring to the table uh, space and time. We bring um, the ability to reason just just when we're born. And of course, Chomsky took it further and said we must have in our DNA um, this ability for language. Because, you know, you got two-year-olds, they might grow up out in the country, their parent doesn't even say many long words to them, and they just start talking incredibly. They soak it up, yep, and, uh, and go from there, yep. And, 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 and go from there, yeah, it could be actually um, very successful with language. And so Chomsky's um, view was this, this must come kind of built in, we're not born tabula rasa, we didn't, you know, learn it all afterwards. And so to, to put this on a bigger scale with animals, I, uh, so what I think with the parrots is their ability to reason and discern difference. This is logic. It's just logic. And I think that logic is built in. Now, you know, we, we don't know. We can't say more than that. I personally think that it's built into the universe, that there are certain, you know, just like mathematics is built into the universe. And so it's just expressing it's just coming out in all of us various animals uh, at different levels and in different ways. Did I lose you? No, I'm here. I'm, I'm absorbing. Um, yeah. I So the, the I don't know what you mean by the universe part. Do you, you mean that like are, the physical this, universe? I guess. No, but I mean, is this is this are, are you? Veering toward that, like everything is conscious argument that some people make, or oh, I've opened up to that. Yeah, the panpsychism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the the argument there that I like, people have different arguments about that, but the argument there I like would be David Chalmers' argument, who's you know he's still a naturalist, um, that consciousness would be some kind of uh, little basic foundational substance, and we just haven't seen it yet. A substance. Okay, I, I need to learn more before I can formulate any any good insights on this. Okay. I, I, I guess, you know, my, my rough hunch is that, um, you know, as I think I side with the materialists that, you know, whatever we whatever consciousness is, it's an emergent property of matter that we should we wouldn't wouldn't necessarily feel any surprise if it emerges elsewhere in, in the world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also back, you know, back to the parrot. Not not claiming, of course, that um, that parrots, because they can conceptualize knowledge in similar ways to us and, and speak with us and, and use some simple syntax the, the same way that we do, et cetera, that they are in some sense I'm – not, I'm not making any judgment about who's more intelligent or less or who's better at, at speaking or not or – you know, clearly this this parrot can't do everything that, that a person uh, that many many a person can, but it can also do things that we can't. Um, you know, their 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 tactile ability with their beaks and, and sensing things, and we know other birds can sense magnetic fields and respond to them and maybe migrate. You know, um, do long distance migration in ways that would just baffle us. I guess I'm just uh, emphasizing that. This concept of uh, Umwelt, do you, have you heard this term, Umwelt? Is that the German term for intelligence? Yeah, yeah not necessarily intelligence, but it's just like what, you know, the, the sort of distinctive, um, the world in which uh, a given organism lives. 
like its own its own inner world, its own inner experience of the world. Oh, I see. Right, yeah. like this paper um, written by Nagel about um, what it means to be a bat, what it's like. Yeah, to be a bat. yeah, yeah. That that line of literature, and of course, it's it's an extension of what we already think of for ourselves. Like no. Nobody knows exactly, nobody except you knows exactly what it's like to be feral. And even that changes all the time, right? Right. To some degree. Um, so it, in some sense, it's like, you know, extending solips, solipsism to include not just people, but, but other organisms that each, each is in, in its own inner world. But I guess, I guess, you know, part of my revelation, my learning over the past, you know, being in lockdown, watching uh, parrot videos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> has been a better appreciation for for that how rich those umwelts can be and and how they can be in some sense enough overlapping with our own in terms of outward experience that that it's actually it's really ticklish and this is against the you know in biology we're trained to not anthropomorphize phenomena or especially you know well other organisms if, if another organism acts in a way that we that's re- relatable to us and feels familiar, we're urged not to assume that it's doing the same thing that, that we think, you know, from that we might do. Mm-hmm. It might be a different motivation. There might be a different feeling inside. It might not be pain, et cetera. I guess, you know, that's conflicting in me now because when I think as an evolutionary biologist, I think about parsimony, which is like assume the, assume the simplest scenario. Assume the minimum number of changes in evolutionary history. Sure. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the feeling that you get when you hug somebody and how good that feels, and the rush of uh, of endorphins that you get, or you know that that surge through your brain, and 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 reinforce that as a good experience. When a dog leaps into your arms after a long absence, and you and that dog is is excited and and affectionate, I think it's unparsimonious to assume in any strong way that it's feeling anything different than the delight that you're feeling from the same hug. Okay. But that kind Does of, that make sense? Yeah. But that kind of argues against your own veil, doesn't it? Or are you arguing that we could share certain feelings? I guess, among I guess on the species. question, I'm, I'm arguing that, that um, everybody's got their own umwelt, including you and me, distinct ones. Yeah. But there's enough overlap between ours that we can have a great conversation. That, that I know what you're meal. saying when you say that. Yeah. Right, and, and also that when you when, when I come to your house as I did, and you, and you served an amazing lunch, um, that th- it tasted as amazing for me as it did for you because we share, you know, we share taste receptors and and sensory pathways, right? So uh, every your your umwelt is different than mine, and both of ours are different from a dog's or a parrot's. But it, the fun part is when there's enough overlap that you can actually, you, you realize, aha, part of that umwelt that I have is shared with them, even a very distant cousin like that parrot. And that says something about our ancestor. It says that our ancestor might have had that same, the same shared part of its umwelt, maybe. Oh, okay, yeah. Interesting. I've never gone to the ancestor and thought about that. Yeah, so that's, and the ancestor could be gone at this point, right? Um Oh, it's but, gone, right? So the common yeah. ancestor of us and birds is is a, you know, an early reptile, so. and it's and is extinct, right? And 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 there are, you know, I don't, you don't want to assume that everything that you share with the with the parrot is because of that ancestor, because sometimes things can re-evolve twice for the same reasons. Like you know, both parrots and us are both really social, 
And so some of the adaptations that we have that make social living feel right and, you know, make us really good at it, parrots may have kind of evolved those in parallel. Or think about the, the, eye of, the eyes of octopuses, right? They have, they have very sophisticated eyes, but they, but they actually evolved that sophistication distinctly and on a different, on a parallel path with the evolution of our own eye, but they, they became similar over time. Every time I talk to you on this topic, I, I, I go away from the argument or chat and I look at animals differently. I, you know, it's opened me up, I guess you might say to the umwelt. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, uh, it's just, you know, then there's practical everyday life that comes up for us. Um, <laughs> not, and not I think our brain like has to prioritize and, and have hierarchies. <laughs> um, but you're just saying, well, that's the human umwelt. Um, I, I, maybe other ones have it. Maybe other animals think that they're the tops too. You never know, right? I mean, to the extent that they're, they're aware of any, uh, any differences, like maybe they think that they're, they're the top the of thing. the hill. They're the it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I do like, um, you know, you talked about your training in biology was to try to not anthropomorphize uh, uh-huh. whatever you're studying. I, th- I think that's a one. This is what I love about science. Science imagines a third person. Right. The third person perspective. It imagines it- that we can get out of ourselves get out of the other people doing the test and even get out of the, you know, the animal thing and that we can imagine that there is this, should you say, neutral, independent, you know, third person is my best way to put it, uh-huh. which the observer, which of course um, doesn't actually exist, but ask science any quantum put, physicist, right? <laughs> go ahead. What? I was going to say, ask any quantum physicist that, you know, they, they'll tell you that the act of observing actually appears to, de- to determine the outcome or, or at least force an outcome to happen within many experiments. Right. It's a paradoxical thing. Right. So I think quantum physics is, is, is basically a more modified physics, accepting, uh, accepting the first person. Yeah. But this is probably too deep for me to go for. Well, it, it's, I don't know if our listeners are, are still they're They're probably with us at this step, but, um, it reminds me of your, of your uh, you know, you're putting truth on a pedestal. I think this is similar where we can put ob- objectivity, this idea of a detached observer who's wholly neutral, wholly outside the causal frame of the experiment, wholly unbiased about the result, et cetera. That can serve as a very useful goal, even if we have to acknowledge that we can never fully be that fully detached, fully objective, uh, disinterested observer. Um, but it can still help bring the experiment and the interpretation of the experiment as close as we can get to objective and revealing of, uh, of reality. Yeah, there I absolutely agree with you. Um, I, I, I'm thinking back on a conversation now, the last part of it, and, um, there are political implications <laughs> with what we're talking about. I mean, I, I Always, see yeah. it start to break down along party lines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every, you know, I think, again, you know, not to harp too much on this, but it, it, that's really been a, a one of the, a, the other lessons for me of the past few years is, 
when I first started doing science communication and, and thought about you know doing about bringing science to the public more broadly than just the ivory tower, um, that was in response to seeing you know George Bush and very variously like George Bush and Al Qaeda both using technology to kill people. And, you know, that technology was the result of a lot of sophisticated science and understanding gained over centuries. Um, and people were using it in service of very medieval brutality or even you know, medieval is even unfair to medieval people. It's just just brutal. It was in the service of brutality. And that stirred in me a hope to bring science to people in ways that, that were more helpful rather than uh, just feeding technology to hurt people. I think in tempering that that uh, naive maybe aim of a young scientist, I think seeing in the past few years that even science itself, it's not just people outside of science misusing its fruits, but even within science, those political currents still warp what we do. Um, and maybe about, again about covering our our butts to ensure our funding so that we don't get blamed for you know for any any accident that did happen in in the course of a pandemic. It may be about um, about putting aside our critical thinking caps for a moment in order to let policy happen so that, that, that we, that, you know, our hunches will be helpful for society, at least in the short term, not necessarily realizing that they may jeopardize, uh, that doing that may jeopardize our long-term, you know, public trust. Uh, those realizations have been uh, taken up some absorbing to think about. I'm still absorbing them and I, and I hope more people are too, uh, to again get, you know, what can we do to keep the objective aim of science and of what we do um, more in our sight line, even acknowledging that politics is always going to get in the way, is always going to be a, a hindrance to that. You're so fun to talk to. Um, I could get into the whole politics thing, but let's do that next time. Okay. Um you're just you're a beautiful scientist and a beautiful person. And um, <laughs> thanks, though. Thank you for this chat. That's I mean, really kind of you to say. Um, I, I I'm just really relishing seeing what you're doing with the new platform here. In addition, to, I, I think both of us have interests that that anchor in science, but also go broader. And um, it's really cool to see the five uh, five o'clock show here uh, kind of broaden in, into such eclectic topics. And I'm I'm, I'm an eager listener as well. as happy to always talk. Thank you. Um, so one request uh, mm-hmm. that, that um, we mentioned earlier before we before I let you go, um, if possible, if you have any contacts, I would be interested in some help in finding a Palestinian to come on sure. either program. You know, if it's a scientist, come on Mendel's Pod, um, or you know someone else just to talk uh, their How about position. An artist? an artist, yeah. So so let's get together on that. Okay. Nathan Pearson is uh, the CEO of Root and just one of my favorite podcast guests of all time. Thank you. Thank you, too.